Okay, so we start our new series this week for four weeks uh, before we go on holiday. Uh, it's called It's All About Jesus. Part one, this is uh, called His Example. Um, <clears throat> and I think probably as we run up to Easter, I think there could be no better time of year uh, than to make it all about Jesus. I think it's probably good timing in that sense. Uh, so as we build towards Easter time, we're going to look at the example uh, as we're doing this week of Jesus, uh, of what he commanded us to do, the example he commands to follow. Then we're looking at the power of Jesus, that is his resurrection power, power in his grace, power in his spirit, power of his love. Then we look at the ransom that he paid and what it gave us when that price was paid. And then finally we'll look at the promise that Jesus will one day return for us and we'll join him in eternity in heaven. So this week, uh, we look at it's all about Jesus, his example. Uh, as Christians, we're called to follow Jesus in every way, even when that way might not be easy. But it is what being a disciple of Christ is all about. But we need to know how to do that. How do we do that every day? How do we practically live out love for one another, acceptance of one another, forgiveness towards one another. These three particular attributes are what we're looking at today in learning how to follow the example of Jesus. Uh, our verse uh, that we're, we're going to kind of uh, hang this on, as it were, is 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25, uh, and then obviously we'll go through other verses, but this is where we're talking about Jesus' example, uh, and this is probably the best verse to, um, to show that. So 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25 says to this, You are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Uh, he committed no sin and no deceit uh, was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Let's, let's have a look before we get into our, our three main points today, what, what this is saying. Verse 21, uh, as we saw, uh, should be the verse uh, that is told <clears throat> to everyone who is looking to follow Jesus, who is curious about following Jesus. When we become Christians, we confess our sin and believe in Jesus. And Peter tells us, that we're signing up, what we're signing up to is to follow in the footsteps of the one we believe in. Unlike the contracts and the <clears throat> terms and conditions that you might sign up to and not read in all the different things that you might buy and purchase, uh, these terms that Peter is telling us about are by no means pretty standard. They are not standard whatsoever. Jesus is our example as someone who endured punishment 
unjustly. That means he didn't deserve it. When he was reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. But in his sufferings, he committed himself to the Father. And whilst it is an example for us, as Peter says here, it's clearly much more than just an example. The suffering of Jesus on the cross is clearly a reminder of what he has gone through and done for us. But Peter is also telling us that our suffering can be used by God. When we read these verses, he's saying, for us, as we look at this today, our sufferings are used by God. They are not empty. They're not just things we experience. James 1, verse 2 to 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Christians are not to endure trial for the sake of trial. I find it very difficult for when I think back to before I became a Christian and I think of all the times that weren't so great. I think of all the times that were hard. And I think now when I I know that I'm a believer, I know that I believe in Jesus, how could I have ever been and stayed in that place? When When in that place, when I didn't believe, it didn't actually really mean anything. My suffering was not defined. And yet in Jesus, I now know why suffering happens. I know its purpose. It has meaning and produces, as these verses say, produces something in us. As Christians who have faith, we are tested in that faith. And God allows for testing and for other people to test our faith, test our patience, test our perseverance. But that testing produces steadfastness. The testing results in the strengthening and perfecting of the Christian whilst we are on earth. It's not just that you keep getting knocked down and you just get up again. Knocked down and get up again. It's not like just banging your head against the wall and you just keep doing it over and over again. Steadfastness in its definition is of being ever so more firmer and unwavering as each time we get knocked down. That means that when the trial comes again and again and again, each time it does a work in us that the next time it comes, it is less able to move us from our position. So each time we get knocked down, every time a trial comes that really tests our faith, the next time we're a bit more firmer in our stance. We learn from trial. When the verse tells us that Jesus left an example for us to follow, this word example, uh, in the literal meaning in the original Uh, means writing under. It it means to put a piece of paper on which to trace letters to follow a pattern. So tracing paper. You might remember that in school, that you would have a picture 
and you would put tracing paper over the top and you would follow the lines to draw your own version, as it were, of the picture. So this literal word, the literal meaning is to trace out Jesus' example and follow it. Jesus is the pattern for Christians to follow in suffering with perfect patience. His death was effective, primarily, as you may know, as an atonement for sin. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was a model of endurance that Jesus did in unjust suffering. He did not deserve what he got. It was completely unfair that Jesus suffered how he suffered. But however bad it got, he did not retaliate. This is a tough one for us, isn't it? Because we have an inbuilt reaction to things and we want to, at times, retaliate to people. Let me put this in perspective because this is a tricky one without it turning into legalism. When Jesus doesn't respond, doesn't react, what they're doing to him is that they're, they're trying to say he's, he's not God. We're going to destroy him. We're going to destroy this man who's speaking blasphemous. We're going to get rid of him. It's all about who he is. Now, we may react from day-to-day -day things in our day-to-day -day life, in our work, in wherever we are. We may have a reaction to someone. I, I do want to be clear. We are called to control that, to find self-control. But I also want to find context here in that when it's a trial of our faith to our faith, that we don't react when it comes to that, that we're not going back and repaying what we have been paid. And we know that verse in the Bible that God will pay what needs to be paid. He will repay who needs to be repaid. Christ was delivered to Pilate. Pilate handed him over to the Jews. Christ handed over himself to God. Suffering in surprising silence because of his perfect confidence in the sovereignty and righteousness of his father. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Let, let me be clear again. This is not that we suffer in silence. This is not that we have real terrible issues, mental health issues. The Bible is not saying here, don't talk about it. <laughs> this is about the response. This is about what Jesus did when he was faced with death, when he was faced with people who hated what he represented. He was firm in the faith. He knew his father had the plan. He knew why he was doing what he was doing. And so our first example there is to trust that what God did in Jesus, that we also trust that he is doing the same right now, that he is 
leading us righteously. That whatever goes on around us, he is doing his work within this time. Jesus did not look forward to the pain and humiliation of the cross, but submitted to the will of the Father. Jesus didn't even speak in his own defence. He could have destroyed all of them. The devil in the desert proved that Jesus had the power to do anything he wanted. And yet he refrained. With one word from him, he could have ended it all. But he didn't. He submitted to the cruelty of the cross to save his people. And this is where we need to be careful. Jesus led a perfect life of the example we must follow as Christians in as best as we can do that right now in these bodies and with these minds. But do not be confused by the word example. Whilst he is an example, more importantly, he's done things that we could never do. The main one being being a substitute for our sins. No matter how well you follow the example of Jesus, one thing we are not to do is to try and be the saviour of ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. So we're to walk instead in the footsteps of Jesus. We are to patiently endure these hardships, sufferings that come from following him. When these sufferings are in reference to our faith and belief in Jesus, those are the things that are testing us, that are revealed in the word here. Those are the things that are relevant to our study here. It's not even necessarily that we're having all these different problems. It might be health problems. It might just be problems with other people. It's about faith. When your faith is tested, stand strong with God. No Christian, regardless of how good he or she is, can suffer for the sin of the people. Our blood is not pure and will not do away with sin. Jesus had no sin of his own. He was pure in every way. Not only have we been declared just because of that sacrifice, the penalty for our sins paid by his death, but we have now risen to walk in a new life empowered by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so let's look at these primary examples now uh, that Jesus wants us to follow. What's the examples that he wants us to uh, follow the primary ones, I think, and the ones that we should focus on. First one, follow Jesus in loving one another. This, these, these terms and this term is thrown around in churches. We love saying it a lot in church. We do. Does the practice always match the amount of times we say it? I don't think so. But there's a reason for that. That's because we're human. It's because we tend to love ourselves more. 
It's what's revealed to us uh, as sinners. John 13, and this is the verse here. 34 to 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I always love this repeated three times. Just to get the message across. Love one another, love one another, if you love one another. We, we talked about something, something very close to this, uh, probably this as well, uh, in our Bible study on Thursday. How are people meant to know that what we are and what we believe is different? How do people know that we're different from a pleasant Sunday social gathering? How are people meant to know that we're different from a group of friendly people who get together compared to any other social group that gets together and meets? Even atheists meet together and sometimes do it, and you might be shocked by this, I've said it before, they have their own service of secular music and secular things. They talk about secular subjects. How are we different from that? How are we different from those people? To know that, we need to know what does Jesus say? Does he say love everyone? Does he say love everyone? Not according to these verses. He says, this command I give you, love one another. Love is to serve as the distinguishing characteristic of discipleship. It's a very nice mantra to say love everyone. But, geez, but spoken here in John, it says love one another. He's talking to believers, people that believe in Jesus. What is the distinguishing characteristic of this love? It's the way Jesus loved them and loves us. And let's just think about this for a second. What is the love of Jesus? It was a sacrificial love modelled after his love. Let me, use, let me use this verse in this context, in the correct context. John 15, 12 to 13. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Okay, this is another verse that is wholly abused. It's used in the wrong context. It's used to describe secular things. Even as recent as a certain Russian leader using it himself in a stadium where he did a speech recently. And he used it in reference to soldiers who went into Ukraine. Validation, you're trying to use scripture to validate your actions. I'm saying you better be careful. <laughs> you better be careful when those actions are selfish and are to destroy people, are to wipe out other countries, to hide behind scripture. Wow, we need to pray for Putin. 
He doesn't know what's coming. So we use, we use scripture carefully. And I want to say this. This verse has also been used uh, by some Bible teachers to say that we too should lay down our life for our friends. But I don't think this is what this verse is saying. We don't, can't lay down our life for each other or for anyone else anywhere near the same as what Jesus did for us. But it serves instead as a definition of the power of Jesus' love for us. So when Jesus uses this phrase, I believe that he's referring to himself in the third person. He's given a hint here of what is to come. The reason, as I just mentioned, is because the laying down of our lives will in no way compare to what Jesus will compare to what Jesus did for us. However, having that as our example causes our love for one another to be more than being good to one another. It is sacrificial love in nature. So when we understand that Jesus lays down his life and he does that because he absolutely loves us, it is not that then we go and start laying down our lives for each other. That's not what he's saying. Because that's how cults start. That's how silly things start that get people into a lot of trouble. You would have probably have remembered some years ago uh, Waco, Texas uh, and, and the terrible tragedy that happened there and all, it, all, all that serves an example of is people taking verses and using them out of context for their own ends it is not that we lay down our lives for each other because the Bible tells us as we've read and remember in Hebrews and Revelation that we've just done the only person we should be willing to put our life down for is for the faith in Jesus Christ and no one else. No one at all except Jesus. So here's our example. He is telling us that in this verse here, this is what Jesus did for us. And knowing and understanding what he did, that he gave his life for those that didn't deserve it, that, that's the nature and approach that he's asking us to have within, with each other, with one another. But let me be clear, it is not that you laid down your life for the next person. If we are in a time, if we're here, when Jesus returns, when revelation really comes into effect, you're not going to give your life because someone you knew who may have also been a Christian gave their life. You're not giving your life to this other person. The Bible constantly tells us it is only one, Jesus Christ, that we give our life for. Our second point, follow Jesus in accepting one another. <laughs> These next two are, are probably uh, the hardest things that we have to try and practice as a group of believers. 
Uh, and I'll tell you why the main reason it, it, it sometimes is difficult. It's because we're coming together, people that come and when we join together, we, church is built and people come and, uh, and join as a community, Christian community. We're all different people. There's no other place or thing that you would do where it would, where the only reason is for someone else. You might go to a sewing club, you might go to a bridge club, but there's something in common there. And that's what you focus on. And yet when with Jesus, we come because it, what we have in common is Jesus. And yet, we come with these flawed, terrible, awkward characters. So this is difficult for churches. Because the one reason we come together is for Jesus. So he tells us, accept one another. Romans 15 verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Romans sometimes is simple, direct. And the first one is, accept one another. You go, oh, Jesus, that, that's hard. I, I don't like this guy, Simon over his, you know, he gets on my nerves. And then you read the second part, just as Christ accepted you. You've lost the argument, right? You have no right to go back to Jesus and say, yeah, but this guy, I'm finding it very difficult to get on with this guy. I'm finding, I can't accept, I'm finding... But Jesus accepted you in the mess that you were in, in the state that you were in. And what does that do? It brings praise to God. We should receive one another just as Christ received us in terms of the pure grace, knowing yet bearing with our faults. Spurgeon says this, <laughs> love Spurgeon, Christ did not receive us because we were perfect, because he could see no fault in us or because he hoped to gain somewhat at our hands. That's saying he didn't need us. Okay? God doesn't need us. He wants us. Ah, no. But in loving condescension, covering our faults and seeking our good, he welcomed us to his heart. So in the same way and with the same purpose, let us receive one another. And how did Christ accept us? In what state did Jesus accept us? This again will tell you the level at which we are commanded to be accepting of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Colossians 1, 21-22. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Because of our evil behaviour that still persists within mankind today, we were completely alienated from God. The Bible says that no matter how much you would have tried to be acceptable, it would not be enough. Romans 5, verse 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God has to do the welcoming 
God has to do the accepting. And the only way that could have been done is through Jesus, who made us acceptable because we were utterly powerless to eradicate the debt or even credit ourselves with any kind of godly righteousness. When you reread these verses, there's a lot of common verses in here for Christians that you read again and again that come up in uh, daily devotions and things like that. But when you read them again and again, you think, whilst we were enemies of God, absolutely set like flint against him, he died for us. There is no other person in this, on this planet through any time in history or in the future that will ever die like Jesus has died for us. What does that lead to? We are accepted. Not because you're any good, not because you've got something about you, because Jesus has got something about him. Jesus is acceptable. Jesus is the perfect lamb without blemish. So he says, just as Christ accepted you, accept your brothers and sisters and all their faults. It's a tough one for churches to practice. If the sinless, perfect son of God was willing to bring sinners into God's family, how much more should those who have been forgiven be willing to warmly embrace and accept each other? We know now, as Christians, how it feels to be accepted. How it feels to be accepted in a state of utter sinfulness into a place of utter redemption, utter salvation, with not one effort from us. Apart from one thing, believe in him who died for you whilst you still hated him. In that way then we should desire to practice that very nature of acceptance towards each other. I think this relates back to the first point of loving one another and what that does to people who see that being practiced. They see something different. They see an acceptance that is above what the world can do for them. They're accepted in the community of believers because we're practicing loving Jesus, loving each other, and that is something the world cannot offer. Are we accepting of each other all the time? Probably not. But is it our determination to be accepting of each other? Yes, it has to be. We have to be determined. We have to persevere. Faults and all. Why? How? Because Jesus loved us first and accepted us first. So when people see that being practiced, I really believe that they'll be jealous for that kind of acceptance. That's something that people hide in the darkness for. They don't want people to know 
They think people will be disappointed in them, that they'll be hated. Yet if they come into a community of believers and they accept Jesus, there's no more need to worry about what the world thinks of them. And that's what we have to be doing here. Every church, ready to accept, not just on the basis of, aren't we a friendly church? But our main focus is, Jesus will save you. Jesus accepts you if you repent and believe in him. A third point. Follow Jesus in forgiving one another. Wow. I can speak of experience of not doing this, of other people not doing this. And it goes on today. It continually goes on within the church body itself, as in the church as a whole. There, there are people, things that people hold on to. Maybe saying these words, I forgive you, but not really fully understanding what that means. Colossians three twelve to 13 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I love that all the commands, it gives you commands and then he says, and you say, wow, well, that's difficult. Again, you go, oh, I have to bear with them. He says, well, we just do it as the Lord done it. I, I can't dispute that, can I? The Lord forgave me. How can I not forgive someone else? He forgave me and I was terrible towards him. I was sinful and awful. And he forgave me when I hated him. So he says, do that. Forgive each other. Let's look at this verse here. It says, how are we God's chosen people? The first verse says, holy and dearly loved. Because who was first to forgive us for our transgression? Jesus. The theme flowing through these three points is that God did all of them first. The third point is no exception. We are without excuse or reason. So how did the Lord forgive us? We need to know that right to follow his example how did he do that so that we can follow what he did and yes the same answer comes up again because jesus is sacrificed on the cross but how does he do it 1 john 1 verse 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness so here's, here's the mechanism, if you will, how Jesus forgives us. And if you understand that, then what it's meant to do is speak to you and say, that's how I forgive others. That's how I forgive my brothers and sisters. If we confess to God our sins, it says, he is faithful and full of justice to forgive those sins. Let me say this. When it says that, it's saying God is consistent when he said he'll forgive, he doesn't suddenly not do it anymore, okay? Apart from when Jesus returns, he doesn't change. Because so when he says, 
I'm going to forgive you, and he does it justly, is because God is consistent in what he said he will do if you ask for forgiveness. Simple, but good to remember. God is faithful himself. The one who has been perfectly faithful is the one who forgives the unfaithful. Righteous justice justice says that the one that has done no wrong is always in the right. Jesus is always right, all the time. That gives Jesus ultimate right over who to forgive. If he is perfect, it means he and he alone is able to do the forgiving. And what does he do with that forgiveness? Give it to those that have done really good things, that have kept the law in their own eyes? No. The one from the world's point of view is of the least deserving of forgiveness. He gives it to the sinner. The one that hated him. The gravity of this verse cannot be underestimated. Our sins are forgiven and we are cleansed from all righteousness. Understand what this means. The consequence of sin, not only sin itself, the consequence of it is cleaned away. So not only the stain, but the mark the stain leaves behind. Nothing is left. You are forgiven. Isaiah 1, verse 18, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This is a really interesting verse. This appears in Revelation. Did you know that as well? It appears in Revelation. It says it describes who Jesus is. His hair is like wool. He is like white. I love the consistency all the way through the Bible. As you get to the end, you get to Revelation, and you go, wow, it's what they said there, they were, they, were, they were actually speaking about what was happening over here. Love the consistency of the Bible. But for us, therefore, as Jesus, Jesus showed us compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, so we who believe are now able to be clothed in those things. And whenever we're told to clothe ourselves in the Bible, it is always in reference to Jesus' righteousness. So the verse that we looked at before said, clothe yourself in these things, which I think I've got it, Colossians 3 verse 12. Holy, dearly loved, clothe yourselves in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. It's righteousness. It's right, clothing yourself always is righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. We've been clothed uh, with, with it through Jesus Christ. Not even the nice things about us are credited to us. And it really is so that no one can boast in themselves, but instead boast that they are in Jesus. Everything you have is from Jesus. So when we realise the true depth of what we've been forgiven for 
and have because of Jesus, how could we not forgive each other? As hard as that will be, by the way. There will be times when it will be incredibly difficult, when we might so offend each other, that it will be incredibly difficult to forgive. But the Bible's got a way to do that. Corinthians tells us there's a way to do that. And here's what's got to happen. Both parties in that situation have to both understand the, the way of forgiveness in the Bible. Let me say this. If I go to someone and say to them, I've offended you, or actually they come to me and say, you've offended me. With a contrite heart, absolutely, you say, tell me what it is, we'll talk about it, please forgive me, I did not realise, whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Now, the person who's done the thing, they have to understand that they have to ask for forgiveness. That's true. However, let me say this, the person receiving that, that request for forgiveness has to accept it. There is no negotiation here. There is no way that the other person who has been offended, once they are request, once forgiveness has been requested from them, that they can still sit there and go, well, I'll wait and see. That's not biblical. Forgiveness works both ways. When the person who is offended is honest and says, yes, I offended you, please forgive me. The other person who is also a Christian, who understands what it is to be forgiven, must also forgive. The other person does not get to stand in judgment of the other person's request for forgiveness. Does it make sense? That's what makes us different. We don't hold stuff over one another. We don't leverage unforgiveness over one another. We are different than the people that do that. Community of believers that were forgiven for a terrible trespass, who killed Jesus on the cross, we were forgiven for that. There is no other offence that me or you could do to each other that would match that. And so as Jesus says, forgive as I have forgiven you, put that thing into context with what Jesus did. Forgive one another. My goodness, it's going to be hard, church. It is going to be hard. But being a Christian and following the Bible, that's what we've got to do. And I don't mean just swallow it. I mean, you're going to have to find a way to actually forgive that person. You're going to have to get back to the relationship that you had with them before. That means actually forgiving them, actually letting it go. Forgive, as the verses said, as I have forgiven you. As Christians, we're commanded to follow the pure and sinless example of a life lived perfectly in Jesus Christ. But there is no legalism here. We're incapable of being able to follow Jesus' Jesus's example unless he gave us a means to do so. 
we must first be seeking his righteousness. And the only way we do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Seek first his righteousness. When we pursue righteousness, we pursue the character of Christ. And we desire holiness more than the worldly indulgence. We avoid the temptation to become self-righteous when we understand that true righteousness begins with godly humility. We remember that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. When we spend time in the presence of God, we become more aware of our own sin and our own shortcomings. When we pray and pray for others, it should remind you when, when we're praying for people that don't believe in him, when we're praying for people that we think are doing utterly evil things, the moment those words leave our lips, we should remember what we were like. We should remember how we were forgiven. We should remember how we were loved, are loved. The words come back to you again, don't they? You pray them out, you say, Lord, oh, and it's great, keep praying that. But the word should also keep convicting us of what we was before, of what Jesus did for us. That way humility is kept in check. That way it's not me telling moralistically, do this and do that, do good and don't do bad. Lord, please stop Putin from invading Ukraine. Change him. Because I remember what it was when I was evil and horrible and sinful. I remember that you gave your life for me. I remember you forgave a terrible thing that I committed towards you. It should always come back and convict us to keep us in humility. Pride and self-righteousness cannot remain in the presence of a holy God. Pursuing righteousness begins when a humble heart seeks the continual presence of God. The humble, believing heart leads to a lifestyle of righteous actions acceptable to God. Right there in our verses, those are the acceptable actions to our God. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. So let me leave you with Psalm 51 verse 10 as we uh, come to our worship time. This is a prayer, isn't it? Create in me, in some ways we're praying this every day. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I mean, that should never be stopped stop repeating to ourselves. Whenever we see things and do things and actions that do not honour him, oh Lord, create in me a pure heart. Oh God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. And he will. And every time that comes, we'll be stronger because of Jesus. We'll be stronger because we've been more steadfast than we was before. And so here we have, in our first part, how to follow Jesus in his example. Don't follow it legalistically. Follow it because look what he has done for us. And that should send shivers down your spine. A people that did not deserve to be saved were saved. Were given grace so that we can have salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's pray 
and will worship together.